This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello and welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. I'm Tom Singer and I'm really thrilled to be your host. Today, we're going to start off with a great interview. I have with us today, Brian Manel, and Brian is a serial entrepreneur. But one of the cool things about Brian is Brian and I have known each other since junior high. And I'll go ahead and tell you, he was always the guy who was tinkering with ideas and business and I'm not surprised 30 years later that Brian is a serial entrepreneur. He's founded several companies throughout the year, uh, one of them having a very successful IPO. He's also the co-founder of The Capital Factory, an accelerator for startup technology companies here in Austin, Texas. And right now, he is the CEO of Mahana, which we'll talk a little bit about today. And the fun part is he's also my co-author for the book, The ABCs of Entrepreneurs, which you can get on Amazon. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the uh, very first of many podcasts. That's right. So you are my first interview on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what led you into becoming an entrepreneur? How did, how did your journey begin? How did you get here? Uh, strangely, I think it started when I was 17. And uh, I was a, a nerd early on and learned how to program and write code. And I thought it was fun. I, I would like to jump in and say he was a nerd early on because when the rest of us we're going to the mall. Brian was staying home writing code. Yeah, because it's fun. And um, my uh, my good friend's mother, she was doing. She was writing code for, uh, and she did as an independent contractor. So she had this a client that's a manufacturer of lighting equipment, a manufacturer and distributor. And so she was teaching me. Um, about uh, the code that uh, that she worked on for this company and how the files all worked and like whatever. Well, she had to go uh, in for a medical procedure and she had to be uh, recovering at home for like six weeks, like a relatively long period of time, and um, convinced this crazy small, relatively small company um, that it was a good idea to hire this 17-year-old kid to come in and do the work that, uh, that she was doing uh, while while she was out and um, it's not like she was out out like she was at home so when I had questions I, I would just print out my code and bring it back and say hey what do you think this does and what should I change there and uh, did that for the six weeks and then afterwards she decided that she actually liked being at home and didn't like driving this it was a bit of a drive to get out there and they were paying me I was 17 and this is like in, like 1985 or something or I don't know and um, you know they were paying me $25 an hour wow while well, my friends uh, working at McDonald's were making, you know, whatever. I think I was working in a tuxedo shop in the mall making like $5 an hour at that time. Yeah, so I thought, ah, oh, this is a pretty good deal, right? But, uh, you know, I had to file my taxes a different way and, you know, whatever. So I kind of um, got a taste for working for myself, right? Because I, I really set my own hours and I was going to college at the time. Uh, and uh, so I was juggling that in between um, in between my classes as well, too. So I think that's kind of what, uh, what, what kicked it off. 
So fast forward 30 some odd years, what do you love right now about sort of living the life of an entrepreneur, having that freedom or, or whatever it is? What do you love about it? Oh, I love the long hours, the no sleep, the uncertainty of a paycheck. And I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, seriously, um, I, I think for me, it's it's a creative process. You know, if you're an, if you're artistic, and I am not by any means at all. And uh, you know, if you're artistic, you create you know, a canvas that goes on the wall, or a sculpture, or a statue, or something that you create. So I think for me, that's part of the creative process is conceiving uh, of a business, like what it would do, who it would serve, what it would make, and why. Why is that important? And then how would it get traction? How do you get in the marketplace? How to align all the things that need to be aligned between uh, customer acquisition costs and margins and whatever? Like to me, it's just I think it's this creative process that I, that I think uh, I enjoy when I distill it down to like, why am I doing this? I must be crazy. Well, I've watched you over the years and you, you've started businesses. Like we said in the introduction, you took one of them public and the, the company grew to over 300, 400 million dollars a year. You have started some companies that you've sold to other people. I've actually seen you start a couple of companies that you got down the path and in that creative artistic process, you realized that this company didn't have legs, and I've seen you actually shut companies down and go start the next thing. So, you know, you really have sort of lived that life of, of an entrepreneur trying new stuff, and that leads you today to being the CEO of Mahana. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Mahana is and why it is cool? Sure. Mahana, at Mahana, we're exploring um, this new Bluetooth technology that is commonly called iBeacons. Um, if you read some of the trade press and tech folks, uh, every modern smartphone that's been shipped in the past two years is capable of hearing these uh, these iBeacons, which is just a broadcaster. So the cool thing about beacons is it's a way for an app on your mobile phone to tell, for instance, if you're uh, standing in front of the TVs or the radios or the refrigerators at the big box retailer Right, and then if, uh, as a marketer, if you know where someone is, like what time, what day, what location, where, and what shelf or row or aisle they're looking at, you can send them uh, very specific information that can make their lives better. Which just might be information about products or a series of products. It might be a coupon or an offer or a deal or something to get you to, to purchase more uh, in store. Um, those are the things that most people are doing with it. We're trying to do ways uh, to make. Use the technology to enable companies to provide better customer service to their customers because they know they're in proximity and they know who they are and what they're doing. So Mahana is a Hawaiian word meaning warm and welcoming. So we started actually in the restaurant and hospitality business. And imagine you you know you walk into you know you, you travel a bit Tom when you go and speak and things uh, around the country. Um, you know you walk in the hotel. Um, the beacon can actually hear the hotel's mobile app that's on your phone, and even though it's still in your pocket, and you walk in the hotel, they they would know like, oh, Tom is pulling through the pull through right now, and uh, wow, he's like a double diamond customer, and he stays here a lot. Uh, um, let's get his key ready for him, and I'm gonna give him a nice floor uh, with a good view on the lake view or something like that. So when you walk in, they can say, you know, they can greet you personally by name. They know who you are. Hey, Tom, don't wait in that long line. You know, you're a double diamond customer. I've already got your key ready for you, and you know we know that you like the you know taller floors or whatever. You know, here you go. You're like, wow, you know. So, so do you mean if they know that I'm coming in when I walk in the door, if they know that I happen to like a grande non-fat vanilla latte, they could have that prepared for me right when I got up to the front of the desk? Maybe waiting for you when you get there. Wow. So it's all about you know in the hospitality business, it's all about uh, understanding your customer uh, deeply, right? So we're working with some brands that are 
finding ways to pull information from from you know the golf and the spa operations and you know um, all those sorts of things. And so uh, might know about you or if your wife's traveling with you, like happen to know that you know she likes to go you know do a yoga class or whatever. And you know, hey Tom, here you go, here's your key. By the way, you know, since your wife's traveling with you, uh, there's a yoga class at the spa tomorrow at 10 a.m. Would you like me to you know put her name on the list or something like that? So um, it's all about uh, you know making people feel the mahana. Well, that takes customer service to a new level because it's not just anticipating what someone might want. It's knowing what they want and then providing it for them. Absolutely. And the thing that will be interesting is how to do this uh, with the technology and not make it creepy. Well, that's so that is the thing I've seen with technology uh, to this point is sometimes people it is kind of creepy. So how do you make it not creepy? Right. Um, I think it comes down to the people element. So, um you know, when uh, when I'm going to the steakhouse for lunch downtown and have my Grey Goose uh, martini, you know, three of those for lunch every day or something like that's great that they know uh, that I like. But when I go there with my family or my boss at night for dinner, I really don't want the waiter coming up saying, hey, Brian, you think you're up for three Grey Goose martinis again tonight or whatever. Right? So, um, so I think it comes down to the people element and, um, you know, hospitality is known for having some, you know, some discretion, but um, there's just some things that the technology cannot fix that just rely upon the people element. Well, that's exciting. And so if other people want to become entrepreneurs, what advice do you have for them? Because let's face it, right? You didn't just wake up the other day and become the CEO of Mahana. I mean, this has been a long journey for you. So I know you get a lot of calls from up and coming entrepreneurs and people who desire to, to get their feet wet in this. What advice do you have for people who want to, to jump in the pool? I do meet with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs at, at Capital Factory. I just held what's called office hours um, two weeks ago and met with four different CEOs of early stage tech companies for a half hour each, trying to help them, give them advice, listen to what they're doing. Um, and at least in technology, you know, I, I can't speak for every type of business that's out there, but at least in technology, you know, the, the failure rate of new startup companies is something like 99%. So, uh, you know, you're, you're going to fail. You're probably going to fail a bunch of times. And um, so I think that's why when I see people who had repeat success, um, yeah, I have, I think, I think I understand how just amazing that is that, uh, that there's a, a few people that, you know, we both know here in Austin that have just seemed to like back to back, you know, uh, do things that are successful each time, which is very, very tough because not every idea comes to fruition. Um, there is, I just read a story yesterday about uh, somebody studied the things that could kill your, your tech startup business, you know, and they, and they tried to uh, analyze them and figure out what they were. And what they figured out was they could be anything. <laughs> it was like there was no pattern, no trend, no anything. It could be capital. It could be, you know, um, product market fit. It could be, it just, the list is huge. Um, so, you know, do what you love. Be prepared for failure. Um, if you do what you love, it might not be a money-making thing. And that's just fine. It could still be a hobby, you know, um, fit it in uh, when you can. But I think, you know, sometimes you find a, a groove or a, uh, that you're in when when you spend your day working and you're working really hard and you're also working smart and the day just sort of flies by and you're done. And it doesn't seem like that was work, like that was, you know, engaging and interesting, or whatever. Like then you're kind of in that like you're doing what you love. Right. And um, and that just makes everything 
about life much uh, much easier. But well, I would agree. I would agree even outside of technology because you know, as a professional speaker and trainer, I really like what I do. When I get to go in and talk to an audience and inspire people and make a difference inside a company or or get the culture of a conference really energized so that people have a better experience while they're on set, I don't feel like it's work. And yet I talk to other people and they think, you know, public speaking would be horrible. I mean, some people look at me like you do this for a living and, and you choose to do it. So that's really not the career for them because it's not something that they get up in the morning saying, wow, I wish I was up in front of 500 people today. Right. But I find even in my little solopreneur business that I really like what I do and it makes it a lot more fun. And like you were saying, for a long time, I did it and I wasn't being paid for it. I was doing it on the side. And I still like to do it. It didn't have to be my my source of income. And a friend asked me one time when I was sort of struggling, kind of starting the speaking business, he asked, at what point do you quit? And I said, I don't understand. He said, well, if you never earn enough money to support your family, if you never turn this into a legitimate business, at what point do you quit? And I said, well, I don't quit because I liked it so much. And I told him that the one thing I knew is the people who quit, 100% of them never succeed. And the, the people who go for it, some of them will succeed. That was one chapter of the book, I think, that um, I perhaps spent the most time on and thought on was, you know, when to quit, uh, you know, uh, when you're trying something in, in an area so rife with failure. You know, when do you finally uh, when do you finally give it up? The best advice I ever got actually from somebody, which was incredible advice was hire people smarter than you. I just think hang out with people smarter than you. I look around, you know, my kids pointed out one time that I hang out with a lot of very successful business entrepreneurs like yourself. And they're like, Dad, you know, you've never taken a company public. You don't have 100 employees. You, you know, you haven't sold a company for millions of dollars yet. Look at who your friends are. And it's that same sort of advice. It's, it's exciting to be around people who are doing things at a big level and I think it really brings you along. I think when you're around smarter people or more successful people or more driven people, I think it pushes you to be smarter, more successful, more driven, and, and then find more success. Absolutely. I, I love hanging around Capital Factory because there's so many new companies with fresh new ideas, stuff I would have never thought about. I'm like, wow, how did you even think about doing this, right? That's just an amazing angle to this industry or whatever. So it, uh, it feels like it almost pushes me to be more creative in terms of how I think about my business. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about Capital Factory? Someday I hope to have Josh on this podcast, but why don't you give us a little bit of a background uh, about what Capital Factory is and, and how that is cool for entrepreneurs? Sure. Um, Capital Factory uh, is a program for early stage companies to help accelerate them, right? To uh, The thought is that if you worked on this business on your own, uh, as opposed to working on it within Capital Factory, that Capital Factory would accelerate the, the pace and growth uh, of your business uh, by a factor of 10, right? You get a lot more done in terms of the growth of your company within the program than on your own. And it started out as a summer program. And uh, there's a reason why the program started the day after school got out and then the ended uh, the day before school went back in, um, you know, one of the goals was to potentially get, uh, get college students who might be toying with a business idea and to get them to spend the summer, uh, doing it. Um, and it, it provided, uh, capital and mentorship and, uh, and lots of services, you know, legal and branding and all those sorts of things to really just escalate you in this 10 week program to make incredible progress. And, um, I uh, was involved for, for three years. We ran that program, and the strange thing that happened was after the very first year, the program ended, 
and we had five companies in the program. And as soon as the program ended, they all, and we only had office space for them for these 10 weeks. You know, we could only provide this 10 week program. They immediately all picked up as a group, went uh, a block down the street and got an office all together again, because that was the thing that they actually enjoyed the most of the program was the camaraderie was working on a business with other people who are also working on their businesses and just that environment that was uh, very fast paced where they could bounce ideas off each other and they enjoyed that the most. And that's when we knew that we had to make it a year round program. It couldn't just be a 10 week thing. And then like, go fly, be free. Good luck to you. And, um, uh, I got involved with another company after that and did not have as much time uh, to work in Capital Factory, but uh, Josh Bear and a bunch of others um, really uh, took it to a whole new level um, shortly after that. Uh, and now I believe there's there's two floors uh, downtown for Capital Factory. Each floor is like 35,000 square feet. So there's 70,000 square feet, probably 200 companies um, all being incubated uh, in Capital Factory right now. So it just continues to grow. And really anyone who cares about entrepreneurship and sort of that entrepreneurial spirit who visits Austin, Texas, that is always one of their stops. Even President Obama, I think twice has visited Capital Factory when he's come through town. It's probably three tours a day of people from all around the world that are going through seeing what's going on. It's crazy. Well, and, you know, that's the whole thing is when you're exposed to that that spirit, it really is contagious. So that kind of leads me to another question, and that is, you know, we live in this world where it's really easy to get caught up in our own stuff. I can do it with my speaking career. Uh, I can easily do it with this podcast as it grows. We get very caught up in what we're doing. You can do it with the company that you run. But one of the things that's really important, I think, is to step back and take notice of what others are doing. So one of the questions I'm going to ask everybody on the show is, what do you see another entrepreneur doing that's cool? Not something inside your company, not something that benefits you, but what's something cool that someone else is doing out there? Um, I have two friends that are doing a company that uh, have a company that are doing something that I think is really revolutionary and different that I've, that I've never really seen before. And whether it works, we'll, we'll find out or not, you know, down the road. But um, I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor. I tend to get a speech along the lines of, you know, you really should, uh, you know, be at least walking or going to the gym or working out, you know, a couple days a week. You know, you know, you really should be eating a little bit better. You know, your blood pressure is a little bit high. You really should be taking better care of yourself and all those sorts of things, right? And then you leave his office. And luckily, he's not there to follow you around to realize that you never do any of the things that he says you should do. And, right? and then you go right for the cheesecake and the double margarita. Yeah, at lunch, you know, when you leave his office, right? Um, so these guys have created a mobile application that, you know, and your phone goes with you everywhere, right? Um, I don't know about you, if I leave the house to go to work and I forget my wallet, eh, I, I don't turn around and come back. But if I leave the house without my phone, oh, I'm turning around to get my phone, right? So everybody has their phone with them. So this is a mobile app that really helps to keep that connection with uh, you and your doctor. And it, it kind of gamifies your life in a way. So if you do go out and, you know, do that walk around the block, like it knows or it tells you or prompts you and, you know, you get like six points or whatever it is, right? So it's trying to um, create a reward structure and incentive structure around better behavior um, based on what your doctor recommends. So um, our healthcare system probably can't afford you going each week for checking in and, hey, how are things going and, so, and things like that. So it's a way to use technology to encourage, encourage your better behavior. It might be stopping smoking. It might be eating better or whatever. So they're creating a way for your mobile phone to provide that for you. So if it's successful, I think it'll you know revolutionize healthcare. Um, 
But, you know, it's challenging. Even though it's an awesome idea, that field changes very slowly, right? So, um, but who knows? Insurance companies uh, might uh, latch on and say, you know, hey, if you actually participate in this mobile system and, and do these things, you know, we'll lower your uh, health insurance rates or, you know, whatever. So who knows what might happen? But I think it's really cool and I, w- I would love to see it catch on and be super successful. See, and that's exactly the type of thing I want for people to share when I ask this question, because I think it's really important for anybody. I mean, if you're listening to a show called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, my, my guess is, is that you're interested in stuff that, you know, entrepreneurs are doing. And with that question, I hope I can spur everybody who listens to take a little step back every day and just notice what other people are doing. Because when you notice what other people are doing, I think it inspires you to be able to go out and do more creative and cool things. So thanks for sharing that. That's exactly the type of thing I like to hear. And that leads us to the last question here, which really is, what is it that you do to give back to the greater good? Because like I said, it's easy to get caught up in ourselves, especially in this entrepreneurial world. But but what do you do to give back? Um, you know, it's actually coming up on the time of year where uh, my wife and I are involved with a, uh, a charitable organization that my co-founder at Mahana and CTO uh, created, and it's called Operation Turkey. And the goal of Operation Turkey is to feed all the homeless people in Austin uh, on Thanksgiving Day and to bring them, not just feed them with, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, army ration quality like food, but to actually deliver a home-cooked uh, Thanksgiving meal to them. On you mean like turkey, turkey stuffing, cranberry sauce, the whole, the whole kitchen sink? There is a uh, real actual recipe for even the mashed potatoes because it's got uh, like Parmesan cheese and but like it. So it's yeah, it's a real uh, it's a real Thanksgiving meal and started out, um, you know, my co-founder Richard, who started Operation Turkey, I I forget, I think 15 years ago, started out where he just had an extra meal at Thanksgiving and and he went around uh, downtown and he wanted to give it to somebody. And he said the hard part was there were so many people that were down there. It was very hard to choose who to uh, who to give it to. And he was walking around downtown, and uh, he found a man that was in a wheelchair, and and he was with an, another uh, man was with him as well. And he asked the man in the wheelchair. He said, "You know, how, have you eaten today?" And he didn't respond, but the man with him said, "You know, no, he hasn't eaten today." And so he's like, "Well, I have a meal for you. You know, I'd like you to take it." And um, and his friend actually fed it to him. And he realized at, at that moment, he's like, "I have to do more than just one, right? I, I can't do this." So the next year, you know, his goal was to do a few more meals. And it started out where he wanted to encourage people to do one, just one meal, one year, get involved. Like just take their leftovers out and give yeah, it to a homeless person. Yeah, do one meal. And the next year, double it and do two meals. It wouldn't be that hard. And the next year, double that and do four meals. Well, really what he does is he's now um, cooking at area restaurants and um, preparing all the meals there. And volunteers come and basically prepare, assemble. Um, all, so many people get involved. Uh, the local uh, barbecue teams come the day before and barbecue 400 whatever 500 turkeys um it's also moved to uh san marcus and uh and dallas and other areas so uh each year there's a we do about 3500 um meals in austin so there's multiple locations in austin and my wife uh, and i we go to the one location and we basically run the location that day um, we we go the day before um, and sort of help with the uh, turkey cooking, and then we organize all the you know. There's probably three four hundred volunteers that come through to help do it. So um, I whip four hundred people into shape to 
do the assembly line and prepare the food, and then it goes into people's cars, and they go out in the in the community and deliver the food. And uh, and believe it or not, we we uh, you know we'll make thousands of meals. So we'll do at one location, we'll do you know fifteen sixteen hundred meals. We by eleven thirty, we will actually be packed up, have the restaurant back up into the same perfect pristine condition it was when we got there. And uh, packed up and home to watch football and do whatever. So um, it's a great way to um, great way to do something that's really impactful uh, on that day each year, and uh, it's kind of fun too. Well, and since I know you and Richard, it has been a lot of fun over the years to see the work that you guys have put in to really make an impact on our community. But it's again a perfect example of what entrepreneurs do. Instead of just writing a check or or saying I hope it takes care of itself. This is what entrepreneurs do when they give back is they go out and they, they take actual action and make things happen. So, Brian, before we wrap it up here, let's talk a little bit about the book that you co-wrote this last year called The ABCs of Entrepreneurs. Uh, I know a little bit about the book because I am the other co-author. But why don't you tell, tell the uh, listeners how this came about? Well, it's a funny story, actually. And, uh, you know, Tom has a series of books uh, called The ABCs. I believe it started with The ABCs of Networking, right? Yes, it did. And uh, there was a few more in the ABC series, and uh, I was talking with Tom and said, you know, Tom, there, there should be an ABCs of entrepreneurs. And Tom said, that, that's a really good idea. That would be a great extension of the ABCs brand. And the original concept was we were going, for each letter of the alphabet, we were going to find an entrepreneur to write about that letter. And so we started that process, started making a list of entrepreneurs that we knew, started talking to people, and... Um, Unfortunately, uh, the process got a little bit bogged down. Um, every uh, person that we talked to had questions about, like, you know, what the book contract looked like. Did they get an advance on it or not? What was the royalty rate, et cetera, et cetera? It was a perfect example of herding cats. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty awful. And uh, and Tom and I got disheartened. We kind of put the project down for for a while, and then um, and then at one stage, it was really, you know, when Tom was very involved with, uh, you know, growing his speaking business. Uh, we said, you know what, we should just divide up all the letters and chapters and just write this thing ourselves, just two of us, because there's, no, there's only two cats, uh, and just divide this thing and, and, uh, and write it up. So we picked letters, uh, determined kind of what letter each thing should stand for, divided up some of the topics based on things that we were very interested in. And uh, and it still took us, uh, and I blame myself and my busy schedule, but it still took us a while to actually uh, get all the chapters written. And uh, the rest is history. And it really did turn out to be a great read. You know, it's it's not very long. It's something that people can read in about an hour and a half, but it's little short tips. So A is for advisors, B is for brainstorming, C is for co-founders, D is for demand, E is for equity, etc. Through the through the alphabet. And my favorite part of working on this project with you, Brian, has to be that after it had gone through the editor and stuff, when we were getting ready to finally pull the trigger and publish the book, we were reading one of the chapters and we looked at each other. And we're like, who wrote this? Like, it was really easy to know that, you know, Brian's taken a company public and has had venture money. Brian did the equity side, you know, and things like that. I did a lot of the networking and branding and marketing stuff. And I don't remember which chapter it was, but there was one chapter that was sort of could have been written by Brian, could have been written by me. And we looked at it and we realized that you couldn't tell who wrote each chapter outside of just our areas of expertise. And I think we discovered that the reason for that was we had the same English teachers in 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th grade. So it was one of those things that our writing styles actually were very similar. And the book really does sound like it has one voice. you got to love the Oxford comma. 
That's exactly right. So, well, Brian, thank you so much for being one of the uh, the first guests on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. You certainly do a lot of cool things, both as an entrepreneur and with your family and in our community. Uh, how can people find out more about you or about uh, Mahana? Um, you can find the company at Mahana. Uh, that's M-A-H-A-N-A dot I-O. And um, you can also read my blog uh, at austinstartup.com, which focuses on Austin-based early-stage technology companies, actually any stage uh, technology company in Austin. That's great. And, of course, you can pick up the ABCs of Entrepreneurs on Amazon.com, either in Kindle or in the print version. So this wraps up today's episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. It has been a real honor to have Brian Minnell here on the show. Thank you to those of you who listened to this debut episode, and we will have more interviews with cool entrepreneurs coming up very, very shortly. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at @TomSinger. This podcast was produced in part by Podfly.net. Podfly, passion for great sounding podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>